Hello, everyone, and welcome, listeners, to Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. We've got a truly special show for you this week, featuring Canada's funniest crime writer, Melody Campbell. For our readers on the run, we'll also present her story, Dog Trap, a flash fiction piece from 13 Claws by the Maydams of Mayhem, Carrick Publishing, 2017. And we've got fantastic news to share with you all. Indie publishing is coming into its own this year of our Lord, 2018. My evidence for saying this? Well, over the past few years, small press and indie publishers such as yours truly of Carrick Publishing have begun to make a showing in traditional genre and literary awards alike all over the world. In our own little corner of the arts, crime genre in Canada, the headway has been particularly notable. On Wednesday, April 18th, the Crime Writers of Canada held their shortlist events for their highly prestigious Arthur Ellis Annual Awards. For those who may not know, Arthur Ellis was the pseudonym used by Arthur Bartholomew English, who travelled from England to Canada to become Canada's last hangman. We were delighted and honoured to learn that our anthology, Thirteen Claws, by the Maydams of Mayhem, launched by Carrick Publishing in October of 2017, received four Arthur Ellis Award nominations. Our heartfelt congratulations go out to the nominees from this fantastic book. In the Best Novella category, Madeline Harris Calway, who writes as M.H. Calway, for her novella, Snake Oil. In the Best Short Story category, Catherine Astolfo for her story, The Outlier, which was also the featured story in our March 18th episode of Dead to Rights by the same title. So please subscribe now and go back to the March 18th episode to give this great story a listen. Jane Peterson Burfield for her story, There Be Dragons. And last, our very own critically acclaimed author, Sylvia Maltash Warsh, for her story, The Ranchero's Daughter. I can't emphasize enough what it means to a small, quality-driven outfit like Carrick Publishing to have four of our authors as finalists for these highly prized awards. I want to take this opportunity to thank the judges, the Crime Writers of Canada, our exceptional group of authors who make up the Maydams of Mayhem, but above all, our readers. Without you, there is no word. There is only silence forevermore. So please keep reading. I'd be remiss if I didn't also congratulate a few others in this mention. The Crime Writers of Canada Grand Master Award for 2018 will be presented to Gail Bowen. Our dear friend, author Kevin Thornton, has been nominated for The Unhanged Arthur for his unpublished novel, Condemned. Our listeners will already know Kevin from our February 25th episode titled, After His Story, Writer's Block. In addition, another friend and former Maydam, Vicki Delaney, is up for Best Novella for her work, Blood and Belonging. Many of you will already be familiar with our guest today, Melody Campbell, for her hysterically funny series of goddaughter crime capers. But what you may not know is that Melody is also one of the authors featured in 13 Claws by the Maydams of Mayhem. Before we speak with Mel, I'd like to now read from her flash fiction crime piece titled 
Dog Trap, which appeared in the four-time nominated anthology, Thirteen Claws. Dog Trap by Melody Campbell It wasn't her. Rick knew it now, scrolling through email messages, stopping on the last one. The words were there, purportedly from her, but written by someone else. Now he was certain. The trap had been set, and he had proof. He slumped back in the worn gray swivel chair to think, and mourn. On the floor beside him, the small golden retriever puppy whimpered in sympathy. More than a week ago, suspicion had set in. How could he explain it? A different use of words? Not something you could explain to anyone else. But somehow it seemed forced. It wasn't right. He and Tess had been close for months. You got to know someone pretty well writing every day online. It had started innocently enough in a discussion group about dogs. Before he knew it, they were talking privately by email about everything under the sun. Even though they were only words on a screen, he found himself depending on them for company and sympathy, someone to share his thoughts with. It cut through the loneliness of everyday living. Before long, he was living from night to night, rushing through each teaching day, eager to get home to his computer to see what message she had left for him. Soon, he was obsessed. Almost immediately, he began to fantasize about her. She would be dark-haired, he knew. Somehow, he couldn't visualize a blonde Tess. It didn't fit the sultry image he had built in his mind. She would have a woman's body, soft and sensuous, not like the rail-thin college girls who shared his daylight hours. Tess shared his nights. It was astounding how much he knew about her without even having seen her. He knew, for example, that Carmen was her favorite opera. Indeed, that was the way he pictured her. Black hair, full red lips, head thrown back in endless laughter at the world. She hadn't tried to hide her identity. Rick knew her full name and where she worked. He also knew she was married and unhappy. He had even dreamed about rescuing her, a silly juvenile thought at his age. That was the problem, of course, Rick's age. It was so easy to be someone else when hiding behind a computer screen. What harm could it do to fib a little and pretend to be 45 instead of 54? A careless switch of digits, if he ever needed to explain it. Now he was cursing himself. He should have been honest. Then he could have suggested they meet for coffee. Why had he been such a coward? Rick swung back to the monitor and stared at the last damning message. Why would anyone pretend to be her? At first he'd been angry. Now he was terrified. This was more than a joke. The imposter knew her very well her work life, and her personal details. Tess hadn't spoken of going away, and Rick knew darn well she would have mentioned it in a message. So who was covering up her sudden absence? And more important, where was she now? 
Sitting at the keyboard, Rick felt alone like never before. Gravely certain, he forged a course of action. One hand reached for the printer. The other hand picked up his cell phone. On Friday morning, two police officers stood at his door. Strangled, the taller officer said. Neatly and quickly. She didn't suffer much. We thought you'd want to know. Rick nodded and gestured them in. He watched with dull eyes as the two officers crossed to the other side of the kitchen table. Carefully, he reached for the chair behind him and tried to compose himself. The husband, he asked quietly. Abusive bastard, the tall officer scowled. But thanks to your phone call, we got him. Denied it at first, then cried like a baby. Buried her in the garden, covered the whole plot with flowers. We caught him tending it. He shook his head in disbelief. The second officer shifted his ample weight on the small kitchen chair. Answer me something, he said. I can understand how you might be suspicious, writing each other every day. But how did you know for sure that an imposter had taken over? Rick's mouth twisted. He reached down to pat the head of the puppy at his feet. Imagine living with someone for weeks and months, and then suddenly... You realize she looks the same, but she's an imposter. You know it the second the lights are out. He looked off into the distance as the dog lazily licked his hand. It can be like that on the computer screen, like living with someone's mind, knowing their intimate thoughts, their dreams, the essence of them. Rick sighed. He felt old, older than he had in months. I was suspicious at once, he said. So I set a trap, one that the real Tess would never fall for. The two officers leaned forward. Richard pulled a folded sheet of paper from his shirt pocket and explained. Here's the last message I got. Subject. First day at school. Message from Rick. Alex's first day at school was a disaster. She hid behind me the whole time. Message from Tess. Don't worry, Rick. A lot of children have a hard time on their first day. I remember crying for hours when I was five. Rick carefully refolded the paper into squares and handed it to the baffled officer. Then he gazed down at the contented puppy, giving it one more pat. I don't have any children. He said simply, Alex is my dog. And that has been Dog Trap by Melody Campbell, who is our featured author today on Dead to Rights, the podcast. Before we interview Melody, I'd like to tell you a little bit about her. She's been called Canada's Queen of Comedy by the Toronto Sun. Library Journal compared her to Janet Ivanovich. Melody has won the Derringer, the Arthur Ellis, and eight more awards for fiction. In 2015, she made the Amazon Top 50 bestseller list, sandwiched between Tom Clancy and Nora Roberts. Also that year, she was a finalist for the Arthur, along with Margaret Atwood. Atwood won. 
Melody is the past executive director of Crime Writers of Canada. She has been on faculty at Sheridan College since 1992. The bootlegger's goddaughter is her 11th novel. Her website is www.melodycampbell.com. She's on Twitter, at Melody Campbell, and on Facebook, Melody Campbell Author. So, without further ado, let me bring you Melody Campbell. Let it rot. Hello. Good morning, Melody. Welcome to Dead to Rights. How are you? I'm good this morning. Thank you. Good. It's great to have you on the show. Um, I don't know if our listeners know, but Melody Campbell was the general manager of the Crime Writers of Canada for quite a number of years. And Melody, we worked together on the board uh, for quite a while, didn't we? Yes, we sure did. Fun, fun years. They were. It was a lot of fun working with you. I was talking with Kathy the other day, and we said the same thing. That was just a lot of fun. We did some good work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, enough patting myself on the back here. <laughs> I'm patting you on the back. <laughs> I did have a few questions I wanted to ask you. Um, I was I was really thrilled to be able to be at the launch of your latest caper, The B Team, The Case of the Angry First Wife, uh, which was brought out by Rapid Reads 2018. And Dell and her twin brother Dino are summoned by their great aunt Kitty, a retired cat burglar. What can you tell us about Kitty? <laughs> I think I'd like to give her a series, as a matter oh. of fact. Um, well, as you know, Donna, I write about the mob. Mm-hmm. I write uh, funny stuff about the mob, actually, satire. Yes. And uh, I had to wait until certain members of my family died before I could do so, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of an interesting side note. Yes, uh, yes, I that's guess. a little intriguing. Um, and I've always been uh, challenged by the question, you're supposed to love and respect your family, but what if your family is this one? Mm-hmm. And, and I think a lot of us have been, uh, you know, certainly those of us who are related to the mob have had this problem, mm-hmm. you know, all our lives. Is, is how do we, how far do you go, mm-hmm. and then no further? Where mm-hmm. do you put the limit? Well, I think you so, you handled it well by going down the road of humor. I think humor helps to forgive a lot of sins, doesn't it? Well, yeah. It you know what what I'm writing is is really uh, light and satirical, if anything. Um, So, yeah, we know about the whole really bad side of the mob. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I would never want people to look at my books and and think this is is serious or has a lot of, necessarily has a lot of gravitas to it. But there is that question running through it. So you have people who were born into it, and if you're born into it, you can never really totally get out of it. No, no. That's the thing. So how do you cope? And so in this case, we have Dell, who is short for Adeline, who uh, is maybe about 35 years old, uh, getting on to 35 anyways, and uh, her great-aunt Kitty has been her godmother, and great-aunt Kitty has been a cat burglar. Mm-hmm. And she gets a little turn in life towards the end and decides she wants to help people. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially with all the senior scams going around. Yes. And so she pulls together 
together the people that she thinks will be able to get back at these people who work outside the law. Mm -hmm. In other words, other people who are used to working outside the law. And so she gets justice for mm -hmm. those people who can't get it any other way. So she fights That's fire really with... After. She fights fire with fire, right? Uh, exactly. And she develops so some that honor. that be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think my inspiration for that was the A-Team. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was a fabulous show. You know, I kind of grew up with it. Yeah, I, I loved it. I love it when a plan it. comes together, Melody. I love it when a plan comes together. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I just thought George Papard was a wonderful character in that. And uh, and so that's kind of the feel I was getting at, is, is um, maybe a group of misfits, uh, nothing quite goes the way you think it's going to go. Right. And, but in the end, they get justice. Okay, so they're actually... They're actually working towards some kind of redemption with their good intentions, yeah. That's exactly it, mm -hmm. yeah. And I mean, you've but got this. But they can rest along the way. Yes, 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 because that's who they are, and you don't you don't change your essential nature. You can change what you do with your nature. Um, but you've got this theme running through your whole, a lot of your work, the Goddaughter series. I shouldn't say all of it because you've got um, multiple genres on the go at any given time. But the Goddaughter series, which I really loved, uh, Bootleggers, Goddaughter. Um, the Goddaughter Caper, the Artful Goddaughter, and the Goddaughter's Revenge, and the original, yeah. the Goddaughter, they established you, I think, in my mind at least, as uh, Canada's funniest crime writer. What was the? Oh, uh, well, you. I think you've already touched on the basis for the series, haven't you? And um, but what what made you decide to go down the road of actually developing it? Ah, now that's interesting. Why did I do that? I think. Again, I was, I was trying to come to terms with some stuff in my past. Mm -hmm. I didn't actually figure out that, that we had mob relations until I was a teen. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it wasn't something you talked about, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, if you're from Hamilton, then, <laughs> mm -hmm. then you know what's going on in Hamilton. And uh, I, I wanted to work through that whole concept of... Of again, you know, this is your family. Mm -hmm. uh, like you're supposed to love and respect them. Yeah. You know, uh, what do you do if you don't? Yeah. And in in particular, Gina Gallo's case, she tried to get away. She moved to another city and found it was too dangerous mm -hmm. because everybody knew who she was and she didn't have protection there. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. she had to move back. So I didn't have that sort of a past, mm -hmm. um, but. But I was close to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you certainly and knew it, enough it, people to be able to imagine what that would be like. Oh, yes. Yes, I, I, was, I was damn close to it. Yes. Um, and the other aspect I wanted to talk about um, in my books was the females in the mob. Yes. And I think this hasn't been done. I mean, we all know the Goddaughter series, or, or sorry, Godfather um, movie series. Mm -hmm. And I think that has really been tackled, you know, well, extraordinarily well. Um, but they haven't talked a lot about the women. And as and usual, so the female, the females have been marginalized and stereotyped to the nth degree. And um, in one of the best movies ever produced, the female, uh, the female voice in it was just, 
was, you know, so weak. I mean, it's just gone down in history as one of the weakest female voices ever. And, yeah. uh, you know, so really, what? how are your books tackling that? Well, again, a female protagonist, mm-hmm. always. I'm interested in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, in my own reading list, uh, I'm trying to focus on female protagonists written by females. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't get the women's voice very often. No, we don't. And yeah, and that's a huge focus of mine mm-hmm. right now. And you'll, you'll see all my books are that way. I think I have 15 now, and, and, we and have, they're all from a woman's point of view. We have great voices. Our voices, some of us are funny, some of us are serious, some of us are knowledgeable, some of us have a good intuition into the world. I mean, we've got great voices, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I and I thought, oh, how true that is, is women are generally, and I'll, I'll just say generally, um, better than better at writing male characters than males are at writing female characters. And, and the reason I was told, and I think it's, it's very telling, is the fact that most of what we see is the male point of view on television. Yes. Yeah, we're constantly bombarded with that. And, and in film particularly, where, where, you know, five out of six films have no female subleads even mm-hmm. in them. Mm-hmm. So, so women see the male viewpoint. I don't have to turn to a guy and ask how he thinks, because I see it on television and film all the time. And not only that, where, we see it on their faces. We are used to watching the male roles historically through thousands of years. We're used, even in the home, to watching the male reaction to things and to taking it into consideration in everything that we do and say. But men really don't have that kind of, and, and I, I don't fault them, it's just that the world must change. They don't have that kind of intuitive yeah. response to our feelings or thoughts or desires, you know? Uh-huh. And so, so in these books, which are, are capers, so very much like the Pink Panther, mm-hmm. um, it's it's in the end, of course. It's the women who who get it right. Yes, yes, and, and I like that analogy. A little bit of victory. Yeah, I like that comparison to the Pink Panther. They really are. These are books that are well worth reading. If you need a chuckle, then look for Melody Campbell on the bookshelf because you will have a chuckle. But Melody, I wanted to ask you because these these um these novellas and novels take you down some pretty weird paths. What unusual things have you done to research for them? <laughs> well, I think what comes to mind first is The Artful Goddaughter, and that was a book which uh, involves a heist, mm-hmm. actually a reverse heist at the Hamilton Art Gallery. And so uh, by reverse heist, I mean that uh, Gina is, has inherited um, a whole bunch of money from her, uh, her uncle, who wants her to replace uh, a real painting for a fake that's mm-hmm. been in the Hamilton Library. In other words, he painted a fake, and it got in the Hamilton, not library, sorry, art gallery, mm-hmm. and um, he wants her to do some redemption there mm-hmm. and to actually uh, steal the fake and replace it with a real one. So this involved the Hamilton Art Gallery, 
I always set things right in the play, right in a real place. So I have to know what I'm doing. If you're going to do that, if you're going to set it in a real town, you can't make a mistake. That's right. Uh, or you get lots of people storming your website saying, oh, King Street doesn't go that way. Mm-hmm. So I went to the art gallery. I talked to the manager there before I started snooping around. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, you know, I was going around taking pictures of their security system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you do that, you know, they might call the police. So <laughs> I did talk to him, and he walked around with me, showed me things. But then I kind of put out the feelers and, and to see if I could talk to somebody in the security business to see how you could actually break it, mm-hmm. break in. And uh, a good friend of ours put me in touch with the thesis operative. Okay. And he, in turn, put me in touch with, uh, and we had lunch with, an SAS, a Secret Air Service um, commando from uh, Britain, mm-hmm. all security experts. And the stories they told me. <laughs> and I know who <laughs> the good friend was, so. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful stories that the public certainly doesn't know. But I did from that get, uh, get a good idea of how to run that break-in. Okay. So, I, yeah, I think that's my, my, my greatest research was sitting down with two spies from mm-hmm. different countries. <laughs> oh, I really like that, yeah. And I know who the friend is who put you in touch, too, at least I can yeah. guess. <laughs> uh, okay, well, what's the best thing that ever happened to you as a writer? The best thing? Oh, yeah, okay. I, You know, there are... There are, depends, you know, it's not money. Let me put it that way. No, I knew it wasn't money. (laughs) (laughs) Then I'll tell you, I was prepared for the worst thing question, not the best thing. Oh, okay. Well, we'll get get there. We'll get there. Hey, we can be flexible. What's the worst (laughs) thing that ever happened? (laughs) Okay. Yeah, the best thing. The best thing was with my very first book, Rowena Through the Wall. When I got an email, and this would be probably 10 years ago now, getting on 10 years, when I got an email from a woman in the Midwest who told me it was the best book she'd ever read. She read it three times, and it got her through a real bad bad uh, time in her life. And would I please write more? Wow, wow. And I think I cried at that. Yeah, yeah. You know, to, to have just one person tell you it's the best book they've ever read. Wow. Now, I don't think it's the best book I've ever written, but mm-hmm. obviously it hit this woman at that time in her life. It hit her at that and, time when she needed it. And um, actually, the episode that, that is going live today, I talk about exactly that, about the fact that if you can reach one reader, what it means to a writer, it sounds it sounds um, as if we're making it up, but we're really not. Uh, no, yeah. it's that one person to make it difference to one person through something you've written is yes. just magic. Yes, it really is. It really is. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, well, I'm going to ask you about the worst thing that ever happened, but then right after I want to talk to you a little bit about Rowena since you've brought her up because she's, she's quite different too. Um, mm-hmm. but first, what's the worst thing that ever happened to you as a writer? Okay. Well, I, you know, is it worst thing? Well, I think you will agree it's probably the stupidest thing. <laughs> I should have said stupidest thing. In 1993, I had a play produced in Toronto. It was at Ac- Actors' Equity this time, and a lot of industry people were in the audience. 
And a producer came up to me afterwards and said, you are completely nuts. It was a comedy, by the way. <laughs> you are completely nuts. And would you write pilots for us? Would you consider it? We'll move you down to L.A., Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because you need to be down there because that's where we all are. And, uh, you know, I've got some ideas for pilots. And and so we talked a bit, and I hemmed and hawed. But I had two really young children at the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, my husband was up here and didn't have a green card. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't see how I could work it. I, yeah. ju- I just couldn't see it, you know. And so I said no. Mm-hmm. The producer was from a new company I'd never heard of before. Okay. HBO. (laughs) I figure this has to be the worst mistake ever made by somebody not legally insane. Oh my goodness. That that's right up there with HBO. That's right up there. That's right up there with not buying Nortel and not selling Nortel. Oh, yeah, I love that. HBO, yeah, okay. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been great to see Rowena come out there? I mean... Yeah, I just, you know, hitting my head against the desk now. Yeah. And, of course, I don't know where he is anymore. I'm sure he's moved on. God, he's probably retired. Yeah, probably, yeah. But yeah. you just don't know where life's going to take you. And I think some advice I would give to writers would be take that chance. Yes, yes. Take that chance, because I do regret not taking that chance. I could have done it. It just would have been painful making those changes. Yeah, well, this is what I say to the kids. You've got to do what you've got to do, whatever seems right for you, but try not to say no to too many opportunities, because they really don't come around again. But um, That's it, exactly. I've been talking to our listeners a lot about genres. I mean, our listeners know that I love crime genre, but there aren't many genres I don't love. And you cross a lot of genre boundaries. Um, you've got a sexy, best-selling Land's End trilogy, um, which features Rowena. Uh-huh. And the titles are Rowena Through the Wall, Rowena and the Dark Lord, and we're going to talk about the Dark Lord, too, at some point, yeah. um, and Rowena and the Viking Warlorder. Warlord, sorry, which takes readers into a bodice-ripping world of fantasy and time travel. So tell us a little bit about Rowena, how she came to to take a nice lady like you into such a raucous romp. And uh, then when you're done, tell us about the Dark Lord. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's not what you think. And this is amazing how this will happen. Is uh, I, I guess I've had 24 crime short stories published. I'd won about six awards by the time I started to write Rowena. And here's how it happened. Uh, my mother was in the hospital. She was the 38th time in three years she was admitted. She was dying. And she was in for seven weeks. And as the news got worse and worse, I remember looking at the hospital wall of her room and thinking, if I could walk through that wall into another world right now, I'd do it. Yeah. It was just so, so sad. And so I picked up a pen and I started writing the world. Mm-hmm. And I wrote an awful lot of it at her bedside at night after work. I would mm-hmm. go to the hospital and I'd just start writing because she, she wasn't with me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I just started writing that. Mm-hmm. And I, I chose the wackiest adventure I could think of, of of walking through a wall and what would happen on the other side Mm -hmm. so I picked a medieval world very much like like say um, southwestern England in the 1400s 
Mm-hmm. That's what, what I'm really aiming at. And, uh, well, of course it's funny. Yes. I mean, that, that was the point. That's got to be a I, key I, element of it, for sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what I was really doing was a spoof of Outlander. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I read Outlander, and I thought, great book. Mm-hmm. This could make a really funny book. Yes. You know, what if everything went wrong? You yes. know, what if it, it was, what was the funniest thing that could happen if she walked through that wall? We were, so we were big fans of, we were big fans of Outlander, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So Outlander, of course, was sort of the, the gravitas bodice ripper. Mm-hmm. And so I thought with mine, especially the first book, I would really play this. Uh, and she rips her bodice in every scene. <laughs> and, and it's quite funny for the writer in that um, some people don't get that. Yeah. Like, to me, it was so obviously a spoof of the bodice ripper. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, there goes another one. She goes through five dresses in the first five days. You know, that, <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, that when people do get it, I, I get the most interesting fan mail. Because mm-hmm. they think it's just hilarious. <laughs> uh, so, so it took me on a real wild, wild ride, I would say. I had incredible fun with that book. But then you have the problem of series. And when you write a series, you see the second book, you have to make that just as funny mm-hmm. and, ju- and more dangerous than the first book. And that is really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Because the expectations are already set, and the expectations are you're going to do even more in the mm-hmm. second book, and then even more in the third book. Mm-hmm. And so I found in the second book, I, I was okay. I still avoided a major war in, in the second book, but the, by the time I got to the third book, I had to go more Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Simply because the audience expectation was, well, you know, I mean, Rowena faced the band of brigands in the first one all by herself, and she did this in the second one. I mean, you know, if you don't have it very dangerous, well, you know she's going to get out of it. Mm -hmm. So in the last one, as I said, I did a little bit of a turn, but I still kept the comedy, but Mm -hmm. I went a lot darker in the end. Mm -hmm. And... uh, and I'm still getting asked if there'll be a fourth book of the trilogy, <laughs> and I do have it outlined, so I might I might do that. Oh, well, that would Again, be very very that. interesting to see how that comes about. And um, I I know what you're saying about wanting to walk through a wall. I don't think there's any of us writers, readers, or anyone that uh, hasn't been in that spot where they'd love to walk through a wall. I think you put that to really fantastic use with Rowena and the Dark Lord, and Rowena through the wall um, and uh, it leads me to ask you about the dark lard because I know this story and I love this story you got to tell our listeners about the world's worst typo <laughs> okay yes this was a, a blog tour so this was a paid for blog tour by my publisher and uh, I think I was appearing in something like 23 spots across the U.S. and in some um, magazines and all paid for and the very first one that came out there was a typo in it so a big advertisement for melody campbell's you know second book in the trilogy uh rowena and the dark lard 
to which well, you responded. Well, this got some play, and I, the emails and the Facebook page, everybody started coming in with what the plot could be like. <laughs> <laughs> dark Lord instead of Dark Lord. And, of course, all I got all sorts of things like Rowena and Thane returned to Land's End and set up a donut shop. <laughs> Okay. Well, my mind, my mind went. And then, uh, of course, it didn't stop there because when you do a lot of promotion, this can happen a fair bit. Uh, and when my second, uh, I guess it was my second standalone came out, which is a, a sci-fi um, space opera mm -hmm. codenamed Gypsy Moth. It's about a, a, a girl who runs a bar at the frontier of outer space mm -hmm. and is also a spy. And when that book came out, the name was Codenamed Gypsy Moth. But somehow, in some of the promo, they forgot the E in Codename. Codename Gypsy Moth. Wow! Oh my goodness, you wouldn't believe the puns that people came oh in for that. Oh my gosh. Now that one oh, I hadn't geez. heard. That's great. <laughs> I do know the character, though. Oh my yeah. gosh. Oh, well, it's been great fun. And of course, yeah, so at least uh, it know, plays I well to the comedy audience. That's right. Um, yeah, but it, and it did get some play. As I say, it may not have advertised the book the way I wanted it to be advertised, but some people remembered the name. Yeah, yeah. Well, I certainly have always remembered Rowena and the Dark Lord. I've never forgotten that, so I think it works. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And thank God you are a comedy writer because it works well, you know. Yes, yes. Now, I want to ask you, as a writer, what was the best piece of advice you were ever given, or what advice would you give to others? Okay, I think the best piece of advice I was given is write the first draft. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Don't stall. Just write it. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't fix what he wrote. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. write your first draft. The advice I would give to somebody starting out, and I certainly do this a lot, because as you know, I've taught since 92, taught writing since 1992 mm -hmm. um, at Sheridan College, uh, is, and a lot of people aren't going to like this, but it's, um, if you want to be a writer, it has to be the third most important thing in your life. Yeah. After family, mm -hmm. after your day job. Yes. But then next. Yes, thank because you. writing takes time. Mm -hmm. And writing novels particularly takes so much of your spare time mm -hmm. that it's got to be important to you. And these are, the, these are the people that you are competing against is people who do make it the third most important thing in their life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And thank you for being very honest about what its position is to real writers because... You know, there's just so much romanticism around throwing away everything and dedicating yourself completely to your writing. What are you going to write about if you have no life? If you've never had uh, anyone yeah. that you loved, if you've never had um, a job that you could do to contribute to society and to your own upkeep, I mean, what are you going to write about? And besides yeah. which, it's just nonsense. It's total nonsense to think that you're not going to have to support yourself at some point as a human being on the planet Earth. Well, even back in the good old days, you know, Howard Engel told me that he wrote five best-selling books before he could quit his day job. 
Yeah. You know, that's 10 years of writing before he could even think of quitting his day job. Yeah. And that was in the good years when we made twice as much money. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, you're going to have to work unless, yeah. unless you are, are lucky enough to have somebody to support you. Yes. You're going to have to work. And so we do our writing when everybody else is watching TV. That's right. Yeah. Or you sleeping. Know, I, yeah. You know, for years, you know, when I was working full time, I had a family. You know, so I wrote from basically 8 until 11 every night. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I wrote. I wrote on weekends. Yeah. And I, you know, when everybody else was watching TV, I was writing. I was and a Sunday morning I writer. I would get up at the crack of dawn and I would write till noon. And, uh, you know, my kids have always been early risers. So they would get up and they'd be walking around and getting things around me. And I just learned to have blinkers during those hours. And they knew that I wasn't going to engage uh-huh. with them during those hours. And then at noon, I would pack it up and try to be a mom and, you know, try to yeah. engage and be part of life, you know. But uh, I, I've gotten I, through entire I, full novels, full length novels that way. Yeah. yeah. I got my start writing comedy, as you know. I was a stand-up and, and wrote a lot of stand-up. I did it more for other people. That's why your timing and is I, so good. Yeah. I had a syndicated humor column for a while, and that had deadlines. Mm-hmm. Every two weeks I had to produce a piece. And I remember locking myself in the bathroom with the kids on the outside pounding the door, and I just <laughs> sat on the floor and wrote my deadline column. You know, so that's been my training. Is I've done it all my life. Yeah. I've, I've written all my life, and it really has to be important to you. Yes. Don't go to the gym anymore. I gave that up. It's pretty obvious I did. But, uh, you know, that's time. Mm-hmm. I have to spend writing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There, there, it, it does. It takes the hours. It really does. Um, yeah. Now, life is really, I think, this is my theory about life. And let's see what you think about it. I think if anyone doesn't have a passion in life, something that they really love, whatever it is, then it's a long, hard, dreary life. Um, I think it's so important to be passionate about something. Even when you have people that you love, life can be, as my mother used to say, life gets tedious, you know? Yeah. But when you bring that passion into it, it's, it and you can focus on that, it's, it makes a huge change. Um, what's important to you right at the moment? What are you working on, and what's, what's churning your butter right now? I've got, I'm going, ah, because my publishers asked me if I'll write YA, mm-hmm. so young adult, and they have a young adult line, and I've, as you know my stuff, it's pretty adult. Yes, <laughs> yes it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so this is, uh, this is going to be very interesting for me. Um, from the point of view of my series, uh, The Goddaughter Does Vegas is mm-hmm. out next year. And that's uh, the sixth goddaughter. I, I've received storming uh, emails to my website saying, but you didn't let Gina get married in the last <laughs> book. Oh, no, you foiled it at the last minute. People don't like that. So, no. of course, I had to write, you know, I had to write another book. And uh, I think people will be pleased with that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I have another romantic comedy coming out. Mm-hmm. And it's called The Italian Cure. Okay. It's about a girl who has just, a woman in her 20s who has just broken up with her longtime boyfriend, and her aunt wins a trip to Italy. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's 
a, a fun trip to Italy where everything goes wrong until the end. Okay, so uh, another caper with and, travel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's just at the publisher, going to the publisher this week. I think the interesting thing about about these different genres that the average reader doesn't know is we don't necessarily choose exactly what we're going to write if we're with a traditional publisher. Mm-hmm. And here's how books happen. Um, your publisher says, uh, well, you know, we've talked to a few people, and they're telling us they want lighter things, you know, lighter things for the Rapid Read series. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyways, uh, we want a few romantic comedies, so we slotted you in for September, and we need it by June. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, I'm a crime writer. <laughs> Wait a minute, over here. <laughs> and that's the way, you know, books and series happen. So, of course, I wrote that book, Worst Date Ever, mm-hmm. because my publisher wanted a romantic comedy. I do not, I, I don't call myself a romance writer. But you know what, I, I, I have started into The Worst Date Ever, and I had it on my list of things to talk to you about. I've started reading it. Um, and <laughs> it's it's very it moves like a real series of dates. It really does. And um, I know I have it on good authority that one of the dates in your book is based on an actual life experience. Can you share some of that date with our listeners, or are you going to leave that up to their imaginations? Or oh no, I can share it. What the heck? I hope hope people will go and buy the book because they like this date. It is the last one in the book before the, the really nice finale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this did happen to me. Uh, we will not mention any names no. at, all, at all, of course. Um, I went out with a guy for the first time. <clears throat> it was in Toronto. I just come from Vancouver, so it was in, it was in Toronto. I think I was 19 mm-hmm. at the time. I was just starting university. And he had this hot car. And what readers may not know about me is is my second passion is cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just adore hot cars. And, and with the sales from my Rowena books, I bought a Corvette. Oh. So this goes way back, this, this history with liking cars. So I went out with this guy because of his car. How cliche can you get? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> we went out to dinner. And had a nice dinner, and he seemed very nice. He was—he looked very Nordic. He was, you know, blonde, good-looking, all this sort of thing. And we were getting back in the car, and I thought, well, okay, maybe he isn't a loser. And, and <laughs> you gotta he, kiss a lot of frogs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> kiss a lot of frogs is right. So I thought, hmm, you know, this this could work. Finally, this could work. And so he opened the car door, and I get in. He went around to his side, and he just got in the car. And police cars started screaming up behind us. And there was a megaphone, and one of them opened the door and screamed at him to get out of the car. And he was, they threw him against the car. The whole car shook. And he's yelling, I'm clean, I'm clean. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you want to hear your date say. I'm clean, I'm clean. (laughs) And, uh, of course, I'm in the car just shaking. But I'm shaking for two reasons. Uh, You know, the first is the fact that 
we're all going to be taken down to the police station, which is exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Is uh, you know, and I had to explain that this was a first-time date, and no, I didn't know him. And of course, they lectured me about how bad he was, and you know, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Couldn't wait to get home. But the second one, which isn't in the book, of course, is the fact I was terrified they would relate my last name to a mom's family. Oh. And would think I actually was involved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And luckily they didn't, because yes. my last name is not Italian. Uh, my mother married outside the family, mm-hmm. outside the Italian uh, community. But the whole time I was there, I was like shaking, oh shit, oh shit, what's uh, going to happen now if they find out who I really am? Oh my God, oh my God. And you just a, a sweet, innocent 19-year-old and worried that they're going to find out who you are. <laughs> That's right, yeah. I was always so sweet and innocent, wasn't I, Donna? Oh, you were. For as long as I've known you, Melody, for as long as I've known you, you've been sweet and innocent. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I often think that maybe one of the reasons I write comedy is because there's this Oh, I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. Alec and I and have I a, a firm that belief that is tragedy fairly averted. Yes, you know, in yeah. comedy, I think the root of all comedy is tragedy, and and it's a way of coping. Yeah, with darkness. That's really well said. I I do. I believe that. I would say that uh, comedy is tragedy carrying on anyway. You know? <laughs> I mean, just kind of carry on regardless, you know, like the carry-on gang, right? Mm-hmm. You yeah. have to find a way to cope, and that was my way to cope. Yeah, yeah, I, I really do believe that. Now, I need to talk to you a little bit about the business of writing because it is one of your biggest fortes, and it's something that I know you can share with our listeners um, and really help them out. What one thing can you tell new writers about the business of writing? Uh, The first thing is that publishers buy what readers want to read, not what writers want to write. I I think that is the thing going in that that shocks and, and, and... make sad my students mm-hmm. is that you know if you want to become a best-selling author and they all do then you really have to write what publishers want you to write mm-hmm. and and that means maybe writing genres that you don't want to write and in a way that you don't want and you have that choice mm-hmm. you know if your goal is to become a best-selling writer then maybe you'll do that mm-hmm. if you want to write for your own pleasure and and uh, you know, write the things that you want to write, then your audience will probably be smaller. Mm-hmm. And that's okay with me. Mm-hmm. That's what I want. Uh, I've been told by by my agent and by, uh, you know, one of my other publishers that I really should be writing thrillers. Mm-hmm. You know, if I would write serious thrillers, you know, they think I would be up there with, with some of the, the really big names. And I don't want to write that. Mm-hmm. I can't. I mean, they're very good at it. I, I think I that's not the sort of thing I read. Therefore, it's not the sort of thing I want to write. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying ties into a mutual friend of ours um, said that uh, the first thing that a writer needs to do is understand what their goal is, what it is that mm-hmm. they really hope to accomplish with their work, and then govern yourself accordingly, basically, because... You know, if you want, as you say, a bestseller, you're going to write a bestseller. You're not going to write something else. Uh-huh. 
you know, and if you if you are an artist, like I've always considered myself to be a bit of an artist, um, I know that's a conceit of mine, but nevertheless, it's who I am. And um, if you are like me, you're going to write according to your muses and, you know, and devil take the hindmost. That's what you do. But you have to understand who you are and what your goal is. You yeah. know, and if no, you can I've do been, that, you can be I at peace. I fortunate. I mean, most of my books are Canadian bestsellers. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> to get on the New York Times list, that's a different thing altogether. Yes. I yes. think, and, and that's what I'm talking about is, is uh, to really be one of those nine writers, only nine in the world who made more than a million dollars last year. Yeah. You know? You you've got to really hit what the readers want to write, yeah. want to read. Yeah. And in my case, I do kind of loopy, you know, caper comedies, and that's not everybody's taste. There are a lot of people who don't like humor in writing. But you know, it's a niche. It, it, it it's a bit of a, a niche or a niche. I'm not even sure how you say that word, but uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it whatever, however you say it, that's what it is because. You know, there are not a lot of comedic crime writers in this country. So you, you do have the chance to stand out. It's kind of big fish, small pond uh, outcome. You know, yeah. I know it's not what you start yeah. out trying for, but it, that, that ends up being the result. Because I don't know many Canadians who like anything funny who don't know Melody Campbell. Oh, well, thank you. Know? you. So it's, it's, an, it's a difficult thing. I mean, any comedy writer will... You know, we get together at bars and we just whine because it's not appreciated. <laughs> the it's tragedy really comes to the uh, fore. You know, if you're writing comedy in fiction, you're expected to do everything everybody else does. So you've mm-hmm. got to have a great plot, you know, good characters, you know, excellent dialogue, you know, motivation. Mm-hmm. You're writing a really good book, but on top of that, you're expected to be funny too. Yes, yes. I mean, it's hard and... And you don't get paid any more for doing that. No, no. And it's also also risky. Mm-hmm. Because the thing with comedy, and, and certainly from my stand-up days, I remember this well, is whatever you do, somebody won't like. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, you know, the Rowena stories, they, they basically are a spoof of bodice rippers. If you loved bodice rippers, you might take offense at that. Because mm-hmm. I'm using the thing you love to kind of make comedy mm-hmm. out of. But that's kind so, of what comedy is, isn't it? It's yeah, taking the things that we so we can all attach to. In comedy, yeah. is risky. Yeah, yeah. And good I comedy totally cannot. Forgotten the question. <laughs> yeah, good comedy simply cannot skirt the things that we attach to. I mean, you can be as funny as hell, but if nobody can attach to what you're talking about, then it 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 drops like a bomb. I mean, it, it's got to be attaching to the things that we all know and love and are familiar with. And that's yeah. how it hits its mark. Now, mm-hmm. uh, somebody called me the Carol, Carol Burnett of crime. And, and by that, I think they meant that my comedy is mainly situational or wordplay, not sarcastic so much. Mm-hmm. I don't make fun of people mm-hmm. in my comedy. No, you I, don't. I, You've I, got a very light touch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You do have a very light touch. I, I can't imagine anybody would take, well, you know, you just never know. I can't imagine, though, that people would take offense or do anything other than just enjoy your books. I mean, they're, they're, they're great fun. They're really great oh, fun. Thanks. Yeah. Well, it's funny because you just reminded me in this kind of obscure 
Edgar Wayne Mine goes, uh, of one of the early reviews of Rowena. I've been very lucky. I think there's 90 reviews on Amazon, and, and, and it's got a 4.2 star average, so it's 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 done well. But I did get a one star review early on, and it was from a woman, and the title of the review was Smut. <laughs> and, and she said, she said, this book is smutty. She said, it's smutty in the beginning, and I read it to the end, and it's all the way through to the end. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, of course, I was appalled because, I, I mean, it's considered hot romance, but it's not even near erotica, and my kids don't even think it's R-rated. Uh-huh. Uh, so I was appalled. Guess what happened? Oh. My sales went up. Yes, of course, of course. <laughs> you know, that's People funny. People read the review and, and immediately went to download the book to see what was so smutty about yeah, it. Yeah, where's well, the smut? Bring on the smut. Tell this business. Yeah, you just can never tell. It's true, and it it is a business. I mean, it's an art, but it's also a business, and um, I, I want people to remember that. So again, know what your goal is going in, and if you're getting advice from from editors and uh, from agents and publishers you know give it some weight listen to it yes mm-hmm. i think i you know one of the things i talk about uh when i'm doing blogs and things is the fact that i i have people take my classes who who come out and decide no i don't want to do this they have mm-hmm. a gr- much greater appreciation of of for reading now mm-hmm. but but they understand at the end that writing is done alone in a room yeah yeah. And it probably takes a thousand hours to write a novel. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of time you're spending alone in a room. Is that, is that really how you want to spend your time? Yeah. For those of us who do it, it is. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people don't have that understanding until they actually try to do it. Yeah, that's right. I think a lot of people have this image of writers of just having a story flow from their heads to their fingertips, and it's all so easy. It's like a charmed life or something. And uh-huh. I, can't, I can't even imagine how much hooey that is. Like, that's just such nonsense, you know? <laughs> Anyways, Melody, it's been great having you on the show. I really want to thank you. Stay with me and while I close up the recording, and we'll chat for a few more minutes. Thanks very okay. much for coming to Dead to Rights. Okay, thank you so much. Please join me in sending a great big thank you to Melody Campbell, author of the Rowena Through the Wall and the Goddaughter series, for joining us today on Dead to Rights, the podcast. You can find Dead to Rights at deadtorights.ca or at our Facebook page. Our Twitter handle is at deadtorightspod. We'd love to hear from you at carrickpublishing.com or at our Carrick Publishing Facebook page. You can find me, Donna Carrick, on Twitter at Donna underscore Carrick or at my website, donnacarrick.com. If you're a published author and you'd like to join our listeners on the pod, or if you've got questions you'd like us to pose to our authors, please contact me at carrickpublishing at rogers.com and say, schedule me for an interview, or please ask your author this question. We hope you'll join us next week and over the next few weeks when we've got a great lineup of authors and stories. On Sunday, April 29th, we're going to bring you Stephen Matelski true crime journalist and author, and will also be featuring the story Prepared. Our Dead to Rights theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by Ted Carrick, 
who also brought us the original story scoring music. Dusty road, a man alone. His vital signs go on hold. And I don't know what you've been told. But the years have turned my eyes gold. And I told you what you told me. We'd never be in the same boat for free, yet it rides, let it rock. 